uh, you need to roll up your sleeves tonight. Um, let's begin here. Um, Andrew, if you can throw up this. Um, the difference between proximity and intimacy. I'm going to start really lighthearted. Uh, so for uh, those of you here who are married, um, it is very, very easy uh, to convince yourself that you're intimately connected with your spouse when in reality you're simply in proximity to them. Um, maybe in marriage or as a spouse you felt this way before. Maybe, you've, maybe you felt like uh, for maybe a day or a season or months that you're like roommates. Uh, maybe for a season you got confused about uh, what your marriage was all about. Maybe uh, the kids were so consuming, so many diapers, so many chaos, so many rashes, right? Like all the things that kids bring with them. Maybe for a season you got a little bit uh, misinterpreted in your head about what marriage is. And so uh, you became like, like kid-watching teammates with your spouse, like babysitters. One of the most dangerous things about proximity is it gives the illusion that it's actually intimacy. Why? Because you're, you're, you're around one another. You, you, you know, there, there's, there's a, a, a semblance of our distance seems to be fairly close. Well, before I move any farther, let me define these two things. Proximity means this, nearness in space, time, or relationship. In other words, a proximity carries with it this, like, right now I'm in proximity with my brother. We're, we're, we're near each other, and as I walk away, now our proximity is beginning to get distanced. Intimacy carries with it a whole different kind of meaning. It means a close familiarity or friendship, closeness. It doesn't imply something that's space and time. It's, it's implying something that's deeper, like a, a heart connection kind of thing. So I just want to go ahead and get right to it and ask the question tonight that's really on my heart um, because there is so much on it. And so I just, I just want to get right to it. If you're okay with me not being around the bush tonight... Oh, we're just going to hop to it. My question for you is this. Do you feel like you're just in proximity with the Lord? Like in kind of the space and time where the Lord exists? Or tonight would you say that you feel like you're intimately connected to him? That there's something deeper? You're not just like teammates in mission? Or he's not just an anecdote for your, uh, your bad days? Or uh, uh, something is celebrating your good days. Do you feel like you're in proximity? Or do you feel like tonight you are intimately connected with the Lord? Well, here's what's happened in our story. The Israelites have made a grave error. They decide while Moses is up on Mount Sinai for 40 days that it's a good idea to burn earrings of gold and to make a golden calf. And as we saw Aaron say last week, he just threw the gold in and out came a calf. Like the fire gave birth to a golden cow, Okay. Didn't happen. Aaron was uh, justifying his sin. Well, what happens in the end, as you guys will remember, a very difficult part of the text, is God then says, who's on my side? Through Moses. Moses says, hey, choose this day. Like, whose side are you on? The Lord's side or not? And some Levites step forward. And then God commands these Levites to go out and ask the Israelites that same question. They do that. And on that day, anyone who says that they are not on the Lord's side, they die. 3,000 in total. Then God sends a plague. We don't know what kind of plague it was. But that's where we ended last week. 3,000 deaths. A plague in, um, 
in God's response to this golden calf. And tonight, my friends, oh my goodness, roll up your sleeves. Exodus chapter 33. Okay, so open your Bibles there. Turn in your dreadful LED screens um, slash social media interaction during the sermon. Here we go. Exodus 33. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to cover the whole entire uh, kitten caboodle tonight, the whole chapter. Who even said, who even started like kitten caboodle? I don't even know what that means, okay? Uh, I've always wanted to say it in the sermon, though. So there you go. Here we go. Verse 1. Verse 1. Exodus 33. You guys there? Say I'm there. Come on. All right. So much to do. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. That's been the promise from the beginning, from the very beginning of this covenant, from the entrance of it. In Genesis 12, when God said to, to Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to make your name great. Later, our kids just learned that uh, Abraham's descendants were going to be as great as the, the, the stars in the sky, uncountable in that way. God's reminding him of that. And then he says this in verse 2, I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perseites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The plague has just happened. We don't know what it is. 3,000 people have just died. And here's what God says. I'm still going to give you the promised land. And I'm not just going to give you the promised land. I'm also going to give you protection. I'm going to send like a ninja angel who's going to take out a whole bunch of lands before you so that you're protected along your way. That's the setting. God responds mercifully. Uh, let, let, me, let me answer one question real quick. I had a lot of people come up to me last week and say, uh, what kind of God would kill people? And my response to every single one of them is, what kind of God would let idolatrous people live? That's the perspective in our culture, right? Uh, what kind of God would, would command people, 3,000 people to die? And I actually say the other side. What kind of merciful God, who cannot be near sin, would allow a, a idolatrous people to actually live, continue living? In other words, every Israelite should have been wiped out outside of Moses, who was up on Mount Sinai with the Lord. Are we together? So it's not about uh, who, uh, who allowed or who God allowed to, to die that day. It's about that God saved those who on that day said, I'm on your side, Lord. That's a merciful God. It's also a merciful God who says, I'm going to give you the promised land, and I'm going to protect you. But verse 3, oh, verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a very interesting statement, a stiff-necked people. What does stiff-necked mean? Uh, Andrew, cue the picture. Here we go. Does anyone recognize this? Does anyone recognize this? This is the miracle weed in the back of our parking lot, okay? <laughs> this weed has been uh, present since the day that we moved in and started construction, all right? We countless times, I mean, have completely obliterated, all right? There was a time I literally put like a sparkler bomb in the area of this weed, all right? Those of you that don't know what a sparkler bomb is, are those illegal? I mean, I kind of lit it on fire on accident, and out came a calf. And so anyway, we, um, when you walk out on the parking lot tonight, you're going to see this, because I just took this picture a little bit early, okay? I don't know what is happening with this bush, 
or, or this weed. I, I don't know like what's giving it life. I don't know if underneath it is just a massive well of goodness and love. I don't know what is happening, but this thing is the, is the stubbornest weed I've ever, ever seen. And that's exactly what this stiff necked mean. Like these people are stubborn as this weed. I mean, they, they're not giving in. They're constantly battling. They're, I, I would challenge any of you tonight, like, please go out back Take it away, and I'm guaranteeing you, like by this time the second service uh, leaves, this thing is going to be like threefold the size. It's, it's unbelievable. It's growth pattern, okay? It's re- it reproduces crazy fast, all right? So this is kind of what God is saying, that these people are a stiff-necked people. They're stubborn. They're a hard. They're harsh. And so because of that, what God says is, I'm going to give you the promised land. I'm going to protect you, but I'm not going to go with you. Uh, in my opinion, this is uh, the heaviest line that God has communicated thus far in Exodus. He reaffirms his covenant and his promise, but now he says to his people, I'm not going to go with you. And so here's what happens in verse 4. When the people heard this, what's the word? Come on. When, disastrous word. I want to stop. Man, there's so much to say. Would that word be disastrous to you? If God all of a sudden said, listen, um, I'm going to give you all these things. I've got a long list of things that I'm going to bless you with, gifts I'm going to give you, but I'm not going to go with you. You're not going to have my presence. You'll have my blessing. You'll have my kiss and my seal, but not me. I want to ask you tonight, would that be a disastrous word to you? Then look what the people do in light of the disaster. Look at what the scripture says. They mourned. Now remember, who's left? Who's left? Come on. The repentant, right? The 3,000 have been killed. The not repentant. Those who wanted to continue in their idolatrous ways. These that are left, the Israelites, are the repentant ones. The ones who said, I want to be on the Lord's side. And so now all of a sudden, what they're saying is, we must have you, God. Like, if, if we don't have you, God, then we don't want the promised land. If you're not going to go with us, I don't care if you're sending an angel, we don't want to go. How encouraging is it, listen, that the idolatrous people who built a golden calf are now mourning at the thought of being distant from the presence of God. We should celebrate this. Oh, the grace and mercy of the Lord that would allow hearts to turn from their idolatrous ways so quickly repent, and now they're mourning because they cannot be in intimacy with the presence of God. So my question for you is, tonight, if that question was asked of you, if that statement was made to you, would you mourn? Uh, Andrew, cue my list here if you could. These are some of the things that God gives us. He gives us grace and love. Thankfully for us, eternal life. Some of us, wisdom, seems like some more than others. Uh, gives us comfort, protection, certainly. And some of you would argue that. Well, God, you know, God never promises protection. Uh, yeah, actually, um, even in terms of spiritual warfare, uh, in Christ, with the Spirit of God residing in me, I have a certain protection around me against 
uh, the enemy, healing, forgiveness, purpose, community, the church? Are you more interested in these things or the character of God? In other words, have you created an equation in your mind and in your heart that has started to celebrate the fact that the benefits come with the Lord? If you got to heaven, I heard a great brother say once, if you got to heaven and Jesus wasn't there, would you be okay with that? You're like, I scored eternal life. Here I am. Get to play golf on the streets of gold and eat Papa John's all day long. Some of you, I know that's not your idea of heaven. Dominoes, whatever, right? Like, <laughs> if Jesus wasn't there, would that still excite you? I want to just allow this moment right now just to sit on us a second. Think about the picture of people mourning because they can't have the presence of the Lord. What's love, God, without your presence? God, I don't want eternal life if it's not with you. I'm not interested in community unless you're the head of it all, unless you're present in it all. Is it possible that the predominant emotion of the body of Christ in America, in the world, is somehow diluting the gospel so much in our minds that we're more interested in the benefits that come with the character of God than God himself? It's, it's a disastrous word even saying it, isn't it? Even processing it in your mind. But you can just answer the question by your life right now, like how you entered in this room. If the presence of God was taken away, but you still got the benefits, would you mourn? Would you care? Or would you be like, I, I still scored, man, forgiveness. Does the character of God interest you that much? Now watch this process unfold, because the rest of this text is going to be helpful for all of us. Because I'm here to be one of the first to admit I have certainly gone through seasons where the benefits have outweighed my pursuit of the Lord. I'm not in one of those seasons now, thankfully. But there have certainly been times where I have. And so if you've ever struggled with it, watch how this unfolds. For the Lord had said to Moses, actually we didn't uh, see the end of verse 4, uh, they didn't put on their ornaments. And you're like, so they didn't become Christmas trees? Like what, what, it, like what does this mean? Well, here's what happens. Listen, when people mourned in the ancient Near East... Uh, they did so not just in attitude, but they also did so in appearance. Some of you guys are familiar with the biblical reference of sackcloth and ashes being a form of repentance. It's much like that. So the, the jewelry and the things and the garb that one would wear, they literally in the flesh, in appearance, wanted to seem very, very plain so that the mourning had its full effect, not just on their heart, but on their person as well. For the Lord had said, verse 5, to Moses... Say to the people of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people, stubborn. If for a single moment I should go up among you, look at this, I would consume you. There he adds the caveat, right? Like if I were to go among you, I would consume you. Why? Because you're a stubborn, sinful, stiff-necked people. So now take off your ornaments now, God commands, that I may know what to do with you. God's saying, I want to see your repentance. I want to see where your heart's at. I want to see how you're going to respond. 
It's almost as if, and we're going to get some indication as this text goes on that would affirm it, it's almost as if this whole thing is a test from the Lord to see what the people are interested in. In other words, God wants intimacy with his people. Come on, somebody, please. God wants intimacy with his people. That's a desire of his. Does that excite anyone else besides me? Like he doesn't just want to be the commander of an army. He wants to intimately be in relationship with his people. And because of his son, he can. And because of his son, we can. And that's a beautiful thing. That's God's desire. That's his heart. And we're going to see it in this text. So he says, take off your ornaments so that I may know what to do with you. I've been gracious and merciful so far. And I have to stay true to my covenant because I can't go against my word. So take off your Christmas tree ornaments, verse 6. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves uh, of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. They take this posture of repentance. They take this posture of humility. They take this posture of we don't want to go unless you're with us. So, so far, we've gotten some good gauges, I think, already of how you enter this room. The hope already is that quick repentance can happen. We've, we've just seen it. So as we journey on, no matter where you entered this room, it's going to be fun to see what the Lord will do in your heart and how all of this ends. Now Moses, look at this, verse 7, becomes a Boy Scout, used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. How many of you guys have pitched a tent before? All right? Okay, so we're not uh, Boy Scouts here, okay? Uh, how many Boy Scouts are just in the room so that we can identify you, celebrate your life? All right, we got a few. Wonderful. Um, when we go to Ecuador, and uh, you guys know I'm not a camper, um, I prefer the Holiday Inn and the like, um, but I'm not a good at pitching a tent. I did, though, now see that like, the, the, the technology seems to have gotten better, because pitching a tent really isn't that difficult. I mean, you kind of like slide a few things you know, on the things, and it kind of like, boop, just pops up, right? Well, this pitching a tent idea is new. Because so far, what we've seen the command from the Lord is, is that the Israelites are going are gonna, to they're going to construct a what? Come on. Uh, like a massive tabernacle, right? We went through the whole structure, right? Like we took communion through kind of it one night, right? Like, like this, is a massive, this is a massive structure. So look what happens. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This story seems like it's inserted, but understand its context. If God is saying, like, look, you're a stiff-necked people, I can't go with you, do you remember where the tabernacle was supposed to be situated in the camp? Do you guys remember? It was literally in the center of it. Don't you remember? Like everyone's tents like went out from the north, west, east, and northeast. And it, like it went every direction. South, did I forget? I don't, I'm bad at science. Um, it, like it went out every direction, right? So the tabernacle was in the center of it all. But the tent of meeting Moses sets up outside of the camp. He called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out, go out now to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Verse 8, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, check this out, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. Hello. So here's what happens. Everyone sees when Moses is going to worship and only Moses can go into the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the people, they come and they stand at the entrance of their tent and they watch like a bystander, Moses. Does this sound like fun to anyone? Does this sound intimate to anyone? Does this sound interactive to anyone? I mean, we thought the tabernacle was restrictive. Think about this kind of way of living in worship. 
I mean, you're literally watching Moses. And when Moses worships, uh, when Moses worships, you go to the edge of your tent and you watch. And then when Moses is done, you retire. In other words, like at this point, all of their relationship to God was solely through watching Moses. Uh, I just had a chance on Monday, or last night actually, to share uh, with a crew of uh, folks who were interested in, in becoming members here at Matthias. And, and I was telling them, uh, our heart here at Matthias is that, n- that no believer sits on the bench. Um, our heart and our understanding of biblical community and church is that uh, everyone together in Christ is all in. Um, we've created in our culture the premise that there are some that sit on the bench and cheer others on, and there's uh, some others, a very small percentage, that, that labor. Uh, but that's not our heart here. That's not our perspective. I couldn't imagine this kind of way of existing where God's presence is very distant. Only Moses and everyone else is vicariously living their faith through a man. Um, one of the cool things about uh, Mike's story is I think there were pieces of his testimony as I heard him share where for so long he was like living his faith through his, his wife or trying vicariously to believe through his wife. And as he was sharing with us uh, backstage just a little bit ago, like, like finally the Lord just said, Mike, it, like this is, this is me and you. This is not like me, you, and your wife. That's the beauty of marriage, that you'll be connected together with me and together with each other. But, Mike, it's you and me. And so I just want to take a moment for some of you that are living vicariously your faith through others, celebrating their victories, not having any intimacy of your own, thinking that somehow you're intimately connected because your mama or dada, did I just say dada? Your mom or dad was? Um, Thankfully in Christ, like each of us can have that intimacy, not just proximity. When Moses, verse 9, entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would ascend and stand at the entrance of the tent. I mean, they're watching this take place. So there has to be some kind of even jealousy or animosity. And the Lord would speak with who? With who? He'd speak with Moses. This has been the pattern all along. Verse 10, and when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door away from the Lord, the the tent outside the camp. Thus the Lord, verse 11, used to speak to Moses face to face, and look at this, as a man speaks to his friend. Come on now. Um, My contention is that who wrote Exodus? My contention is what? Come on. Is that Moses did. So if Moses is recounting this, Moses now is describing his intimacy with the Lord like a man speaks with a friend. Does that stir anyone else besides me? I mean, the one who's penning it is the one who experienced it. And his experience with God is that he could pray to him, that he could talk with him, that he could commune with him. Oh, yes, there was a, a very distinct fear of God, a very awe of God, a very um, uh, presence of the Lord, uh, the glory of the Lord, the holiness of the Lord that would bring him to his knees at times, cause him to take his sandals off because he was on holy ground. But in spite of all of that, pre-Jesus on the cross, pre-resurrection, pre-Holy Spirit in believers, Moses felt like him and God talked like face-to-face, like in communion with one another going on right now in our body in prayer. It's not just in the college-age students. There's all of a sudden a rise of prayer 
in our body because I feel like people are more and more emboldened by the confidence that they have to approach the throne of grace through Christ to speak to God. Come on out. Some of you guys grew up thinking that it was like you had to say the right words for God to hear, right? Okay, so what did that guy say? All right, so let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your propitiation um, for all. Is that a cuss word? No, okay, good. Uh, thank you. You know, and you, you felt like you had to say all these doctrinal words, right? What's that theology? God, the, God, give us strong theology. And Lord, please, for the atone, the atone scent of your, you know, you even like messed up some things, right? I don't know. I don't know how you talk to some of your nearest and dearest intimate friends. But what I'm, what I'm loving seeing right now is people who in boldness talk to God. Hey, God, here's what I'm struggling with today. Um, God, I know that you know my heart. I just want to bring, like, here, here's where I'm at, God. I'm honestly wrestling with doubt today. God, I've, I've been struggling all day, and I don't, even, I don't even know what to say or what to do, God. And instead of saying amen... You just keep the conversation going all throughout the day. That's what scripture says when it says pray continuously. This is ongoing conversation with the Lord. And yes, his presence and glory and awe of who he is brings you to your knees. Oh, yes. But for some of you that have been distanced in prayer because you think somehow that it's a formula that only smart people have, let me encourage you with this. Through Christ, all those in Christ can approach the throne of grace in confidence. In confidence. All of us. All of us. Okay? God isn't saying, hey, um... Listen, if you don't say these seven points of prayer, like, you, you, you go ahead and get to step in, right? Have you ever felt like you said the wrong words and God, like, you know, turned his back on you? No. If God was gracious to your sin, don't you think he would be gracious in your journey as you learn how to plead to him? Okay. Moses and God just have this face-to-face -face interaction. It's a huge point in our story. Despite what Moses has, despite what Moses feels, we need to take note of all this as we now watch this play out, okay? When Moses turned again uh, in the middle of verse 11, when he turned again to his camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, we've seen this, Joshua was waiting halfway up Mount Sinai, a young man would not depart from the tent. So the, the tent was guarded, as it were, all times by Joshua. Kind of sounds like not so fun of a job, right? Moses gets to go and talk to God. Joshua, the intern, hangs at the door, right? Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, look at this. Check this out. If I have found favor in your sight, look at what he says. Please show me your ways that I may know who? That I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation, he says, is your people. Does that seem like fancy rhetoric to you, anybody? Or does that seem like a man who is pleading in intercession for his people and even himself at this point to the God of the universe? And what does he say? Show me your ways that I may know you. Can, can we spend some time here? Is that cool? Awesome. Um, there's a lot of Christian F words, okay? Oh, Mark, what do you, what do you you're right. There's a lot of Christian F words, all right? Uh, one of my favorites is fine. Christians are great at saying fine, 
right? How are things going? Fine. How's our marriage? Fine. How's your job? Fine, right? It's like everything's fine, okay? Until all of a sudden something breaks down and it's not so much, all right? Um, but there's, there's other huge F words in, in the Christian language, and one of them we see right here. Like Moses desires, Moses desires to be intimately connected with his father, and he doesn't rest on his feelings, when you ask someone about how their relationship with the Lord is going, often they'll, they'll say things like, I feel like we're kind of distant. I feel like I'm going through a really intense season. I feel, and I'm not negating emotions. Hang with me. What I'm saying, though, is if you base your relationship with Christ on your emotions, how's that going for you? I mean, the roller coaster whether outwardly or inwardly, that your emotions go through, right? Because some of us are very outward with our emotions. But if you're not outward, most of you, at least internally, go through a little bit of a roller coaster. No, Mark, I'm an introvert. I don't get emotional, right? Well, inwardly, your heart's like bouncing out of your chest, okay? So in some regards, all of us, the roller coaster of emotions. So what does Moses say? Hey, God, um, I want to feel you tonight. So because I want to feel you right now, God, could you, uh, could you do something really cool so that I'll cry and then I'll walk out and forget about you, right? Like, that's not what he says. Moses connects the presence of God with a knowledge of the character of God. He says, show me your ways that I might know you. And then in the knowing of who the character of God is, let the emotions flow, I say. Because the nearer you draw to the character of God, I got to tell you, like, there are several times a day where I do just get weepy-eyed. And you're like, Mark, that's soft. Okay, you try drawing near to a great, gracious God who's poured out his mercy again on my punk itself. How would you not cry? How would you not have semblances of joy that are just bursting forth because of the work that God has done? The nearer you draw to the character of God, it breeds emotions. But then our relationship with God is based then on his character and not how we're feeling that day. What I'm saying is Moses, this dude understands in a reckless pursuit of the character of God what the presence of God is like in pursuing it. He says, show me your ways. Show me who you are. Show me more of your character. Coming from a man who what? Coming from a man who talks to God face to face. Coming from a man who's like seen the pillar in the cloud. He's seen the, like, this, this dude is connected with the Lord. It's important in the story. As connected with the Lord as he is, he's still saying, show me your ways. As if to say, there's still so much out there. As if to say, at the moment that I think I begin to understand your character, there's still so much more of your promises and who you are that I have to learn. Isn't that fun, my friends, that our journey with him never ends on this earth? There's always glimpses and pieces and facets of his character that he's continually revealing. Anybody, right? Like, it's the beauty of our sanctification, the ongoing growth that the Spirit's doing in our life. We get the chance to see his character just go crazy. And as I've said before, when right a theology and doctrine meet right emotion, that's what we're seeing right here. Moses desires to be in the presence of God, and he seeks it not through an emotional experience, but through the character of God, and then the emotions flow. 
Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, he says in verse 13, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. I picture his fist clenched saying, don't forget, this is your people. And he said, look at this. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Okay, okay, okay. If you're Moses, what does that statement do to you? Moment of interaction, okay? If you're Moses, and every, every person, every Israelite has just mourned, taken off their Christmas tree ornaments to mourn that God's presence wouldn't go with them, and then all of a sudden Moses hears from God, I'm going to go with you, my presence will be with you, I'll give you rest. What does that do to you? It increases your faith, doesn't it? Like answered prayer, answered intercession, answered pleading to the Lord. Like I picture again Moses' faith just taking a massive leap. Yes, God. Yes, and here's what Moses says. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. In other words, what Moses is saying is, okay, I hear you, but you know what, God? I'm going to seek you all the more. I need more affirmation. I need more affirmation. So now we're going to get to see what God does. Does God get angry that Moses wants more? No, God. Listen, if you're not going to go with us, I'm, 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 I'm game off. Like, I'm not going. If your presence doesn't go, well, God just said my presence will go. Moses like, if your presence will not go, um, I don't want to go either. For how shall, look at this, verse 16. This is awesome. Huge point in the story. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people. Look at this, please see this. Is it not in your going with us so that we are, what's the word? Come on, somebody. Distinct. What makes us distinct believers in the room? Is it the radio stations that we rock, right? I mean, my kids can sing the Joy FM jingle, right? Joy Right, like that. And I tell them, hey, listen, you know, when people, when, you know, friends get in the van, hey, listen, you guys just sing the Joy FM jingle, you know, rock it, go, kids, right? Is, is it that? Is it the, the church participation and attendance that we give? Is that our distinction? Is our distinction our morality? Our ability to do good works, follow God. Is our distinction our Jesus graphic t-shirts? Or when I was growing up, the WWJD bracelets, oh, I had like 15. Anybody else? In every color, and I rocked them, and rocked them proud. What is our distinction? Is it all those things? Or is it the presence of God? Is it that my great distinction between me and the non-believer is that God is inside of me and therefore with me? And so then my good works are in response to God being with me. And the blessing of community is in response and part of God being with me. And yes, I, I rock Joy FM. Why? Because I enjoy worshiping in my car. I'm sorry. And that's an outpouring of God being with me. In other words, our distinction is that God is with us, church. And so now we're back to our, original, uh, to our original issue. 
If our greatest distinction as believers is that God is with us, and yet we feel like we're just in proximity to God, do you see the chasm now that's been created? Our greatest distinction is he's with us. We feel like we're just kind of around him. And therein lies the problem. Moses says, what's going to distinguish us, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And look at this. Look at verse 17 in the answer of the intercession. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. Come on now. And I know you what? I know you what? Come on. By name. That's my story in here. Anyone else's? I know you by name. The Lord's intimate connect, uh, connection with us. Scripture says in another place, the amount of hairs on our head. For some of you, that's a very easy count. For others of us, it's a little more difficult. Okay? He knows us by name. And then, my friends, if you're, if you're still here tonight, you get to see this next part of the story. Moses said, please show me your glory. Has he relented? Has Moses given up? Has Moses been like, okay, you've answered, you've answered my prayers, so I'm just going to hang back now. No, he continues to pursue my big question is, why does Moses want to see his glory? Hasn't he seen it already? Hasn't he seen glimpses in it when he was in the tent? Hasn't he seen pictures of it in the pillar and the smoke? Like, hasn't Moses experienced uh, a good uh, semblance of the glory of God? Why does he want to see it again here? You want to know why? Because he is relentless. Relentless. He is desperate in his pursuit of God. He doesn't want anything else. Remember this man? This is the same man who doubted so many times in the early parts of his story, and now he cannot get anything off his mind but the presence and relationship and intimacy with God. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness, which is another way of saying all my full splendor, before, pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name. Try to get a mental image of this. He's going to proclaim his name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, says God. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God says that grace and mercy are at his initiation. And he says in verse 20, but he says, you cannot see my face, for man shall, uh, shall not see me and live. And some of you are like, but hold on a second, Mark, you just told us that Moses talked to God like, he, like they were face to face. And Moses was writing in reference to their intimacy, but certainly yet hasn't seen the face of God. And as uh, God now prescribes, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. Uh, well, the cleft is, is like a, a little bit of a, an insert in a massive structure of rock. So in other words, like if the rock came out like this and Moses was standing inside of it, as the Lord passes by, his, his visual is very, very brief. Okay, He's protected. He's, 
um, being graced now by God. He's uh, being warmed, comforted by God. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And look at this. And I will cover you with my hand. What, what does that look like? I'll cover you with my hand, right? Like, was this a, an image of some kind of human hand? Is this the manifestation of, of like a, a cloud? Like, what is this picture of the hand of God covering Moses? He says at the end of verse 22, until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand. It's like hide and go, God seek, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so Moses hiding in the cleft of the rock, God holds his hand over him, and as he's passing by, we see in another place of Scripture, Moses sees, as it were, the train of God's glory. In another place in Scripture, his backside. Why? Because Moses asks, Show me your glory. Think of the prayers that were answered throughout this whole text. God, relent. We're not going to go unless you go with us. God says, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to give you rest. Moses pleaded last time, listen, don't destroy your people. Be merciful. God was merciful. Now he prays, show me your glory. God answers again. God doesn't say, shut up, Moses. Stop talking to me. It doesn't happen. God blesses the pursuit of Moses. And an artist kind of rendered it like this, like a man hiding in the cleft of the rock as the presence of God passes by, longing so much to be in the presence of God that nothing would get in his way whatsoever. My friends, picture that. No, 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 no. Um, Some of you in here that are parents, you have um, experienced this more than likely. Um, you go to the grocery store, and your kids are right there by you. I mean, they're right around you. You're pushing the cart. You're giving the glance back left and right. Yeah, and they're like, you know, knocking over some soup cans, and you're picking them up, right? And they're trying to five-finger discount some lemonade in their pocket, and, you know, they're doing all kinds of things. And then as you push the cart a little bit further, you look back, and one of them is missing. There is something that happens in the parent at that point, where all of a sudden, like, everything just becomes frantic. Everything becomes desperate. Okay, I've experienced this, even just for a short period of time, you feel like it's forever. I mean, you're, you're, you're looking down every aisle, like, you, you, you won't stop until it's found. I'm not going to go anywhere else until, and you're, you know, hey, have you seen my, like, the little blonde, spiky-haired kid? Have you, have you, has he been running around here? You're listening for his voice. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, you will find this kid. You're so desperate to be back in his presence, in their presence, in her presence, in that intimacy, you will not stop. How many of you would ever walk out of the grocery store, let the door shut, and say they'll figure it out for themselves? Never as a parent. You become desperate. You say, I will seek this kid until he's found. All of a sudden, I feel like I finally understand what I've always been distant from in Scripture, and that's the word seek. Here's what Colossians says. Check this out. If then you have been raised with Christ, here's the word, seek the things that are above. 
Maybe you'll remember passages in the, the Gospels that say, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Or maybe ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. The word seek, it means crave. It means pursue. It means go after. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. This is what Moses does. Come on. Pre-resurrection. Pre-Holy Spirit and dwelling in every believer. Moses desperately seeks presence with God. He doesn't connect with his emotions or his feelings. He connects with God's character. And he says, I will keep pursuing. I'm not interested in proximity. I'm not interested in being around you, God. I long to know your ways. Would you mourn? Would you mourn? Would you mourn tonight if his presence was distant from you while all the while it's there waiting for you? For those that are just in proximity, repent. Seek the Lord. Seek the character of God. Seek the wellspring of truth that God's given us. Ask God to show you his ways. He will answer that prayer. And then as he shows you more and more of himself through his scripture, celebrate with tremendous emotion, joy, and tears that, oh yes, this God is real. I had a sister walk in here just a little bit ago. And she said, Mark, listen, I've completely shut God off. I'm tired of this relationship with God. I don't believe anymore. And in my heart, I was reminded again of just how much I long to daily be connected with the presence of God. And I would never, ever desire to be so lost as to say something like that. But there's some of you tonight that are. And I'm just saying, you don't have to live one more day in that lostness, in that distance and that just proximity. Listen, you can have intimacy with a great God. Closeness, relationship. Let's stand together, church. Come on. So God, tonight, uh, I pray that you will show us your glory. I pray that you'll show us your reality. I pray that you'll teach us your character. I pray that those who are just in proximity, those who are struggling, those who have based everything on their feelings, I pray tonight that you'll draw them in again to you, your person, your character. God, hide us in your hand, in your protection, in your love. Put a desire in our heart tonight, not for the benefits, but for you.